Let's pray one more time. Kind Father, as we come as your people, we ask that you would speak to our hearts through your word, that you would bless the preaching of your word, that despite my inadequacies or even my adequacies, that it would not be my word or work that's up here, but Lord, that you would come and you would preach to your people, that you would set our, our minds upon all that you declare, and that we would be changed and transformed into the image and the likeness of your Son. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. For graduates of high school and college, it's, been, it's become almost a cliche to receive this gift from one of my favorite theologians, Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. We get the, the classic, oh, the places you will go. Now, I didn't really read this until very late. I read it you know, after becoming a parent, after graduating. No one ever gave it to me as a graduation gift. I think they saw my life and, seen, and saw that this was far too optimistic of a book for anything that I was going to become, out to become. and so I only read it, you know, just a few years ago. But uh, Seuss's book, you know, Oh, the Places You'll Go, you know, it has this incredible over-the-top optimism of the future of you, the reader, as you read it. You know, you're going to move mountains. You're going to be a winner. You're going to you know, transform society. You're going to go out and, and do all these things. But interspersed with that is, is the acknowledgement and the reality of, of life's hardships, that things don't always go as planned. And so uh, Geisel, you know, or Seuss, he, he starts off and he talks about how, well, you'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers to soar who soar the high heights. You won't lag behind. You'll soon have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang, and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you'll fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you'll top all the rest. Pretty optimistic, huh? Except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. And you can get all hung up on a prickly perch and your gang will fly by. You'll be left in the lurch and you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump. And the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. For unslumping yourself is not easily done. And you'll come to the place where the streets are not marked, where some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark, a place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? How much can you lose and how much can you win? And if you go in, should you turn left or right or right in three quarters or maybe not quite or go around back and sneak in from behind? Simple it's not, I'm afraid you will find for a mind maker upper to make up his mind. And you'll get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled rows at a breakneck pace and you grind on for miles across weirdest wild space headed, I fear, for the most useless place, the waiting place. For people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow, waiting around for a yes or a no, waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting waiting for the fish to bite, 
waiting for the wind to fly a kite, waiting around for a Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake or the pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig of curls or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. We see in the young man, or really supposed to be us, coming to the acknowledgement of, well, things don't always go as you want. Bang-ups and hang-ups, they happen to you. You're left in the lurch, you're in a slump, and heaven forbid, you're in the waiting place. Waiting for your fortunes to change, waiting for something to happen. And in these times, it can be easy to get discouraged, frustrated, resentful. There's something true that, that Dr. Seuss gets at about real life. Real life that happens to, to us. Not because we're bad or incompetent, but because life happens. You get sick. A family member gets sick. Your company downsizes and you're laid off. A thousand different things come in and interrupt your life and as you're stuck and in the slump, it seems that the world passes you by. This week, we're going to begin a, a three-part series on joy through life's hardships. And we're going to begin with talking about joy in setbacks. You know, those bang-ups and hang-ups that prevent us from going on in the way that, that we see, that seems to us to be the, you know, the natural way forward to progress as we should, to actualize our potential, to move forward in the way that, well, it seems logical and right and would be good. The bang-ups and hang-ups that happen to you, well, what the, the scriptures talk about, in those times, joy can be found. Joy can be accessible in the slump and in the lurch. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the pew Bibles that's in front of you, it's going to be on page 1195. And we're going to be reading a letter from Paul to the church of Philippi. And one of the main themes that runs throughout this, script, throughout this letter is about having joy and joy in the midst of really hard times and in all circumstances. And Paul, you may have heard of him. Perhaps the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen. You know, he, uh, given the, the title of the apostle to the Gentiles, he, he took the gospel of Jesus and preached it throughout all the known world, planting churches, setting up people who, you know, of Jesus' followers all throughout the world, encouraging them and doing all sorts of things in order to, to let Jesus' name be proclaimed. But he reaches a point. He goes back to Jerusalem. And you can read about this story in, in Acts 21 through 28. And in Jerusalem, while well, some people either purposely misinterpret him or incidentally misinterpret him and saying that he was saying things that he wasn't saying. That he was proclaiming that, that Jews should no longer be Jewish. And a, and a mob formed and rose up they began to, to beat him until he was saved by some Roman centurions. He, he asks that he can go and speak to them and try to clear things up, and he does. But rather than clearing things up, the mob all the more shouts, away with him. And so Rome puts him in prison. For years, 
multiple years. And the people who are to decide his fate, they know he's innocent, but they don't release him. They're waiting for a bribe or to do it as a favor to his, his fellow Jews. And eventually, somebody takes over and he wants to send him back to be tried by the very people who are accusing him. So he appeals to go to Rome, to appeal to Caesar. And so they ship him off to Rome, as was his right as a Roman citizen. And there he stays in house arrest for more time until he can await his trial there. Years he spent taken away from his task, in the lurch, dealing with the bang-ups and hang-ups of this world. And it's here he writes this letter to the Philippian church and calls them to have joy again and again, joy in all circumstances. So if you would, read with me Philippians 1, we're going to read 12 through 18a. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do so out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up uh, trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. As Paul writes to the, to the Philippians in the midst of his own setbacks, and he proclaims well, a, a, an ability to rejoice. Despite all these things that are happening, despite all the trials, the bang-ups and the hang-ups, in some ways being abandoned by his friends, being castigated by his brothers and sisters in the church, being rejected by his own people, being tried in a, under an unjust situation, and yet, he rejoices. Now, I had a sermon prepared, or at least a good portion of the sermon prepared early this week, about finding joy in the midst of setbacks. I mean, that is the title. But I came to realize, well, that before I can even preach that sermon, another one needs to be preached. I can give principles on finding joy in the midst of of setbacks, finding joy in the midst of the hang-ups and the bang-ups of this life. But I knew that for many of us, it would be an inaccessible sermon. That what I would call us to do wouldn't be accessible, wouldn't be attainable, because we wouldn't be the people who could hear the words, who could implement the words. So today, I'm actually going to be talking about how to be a people who can find joy in the midst of setbacks. And the first thing that we're called, to, have, to be able to have joy in the midst of setbacks, we must build our life on something firm rather than fragile. Now, implied in this passage, but made more explicitly uh, a little bit later, we have to understand where Paul is coming from, how he views his life. In verse 21, if you look down in there, he 
He lets them know as he's talking about his potential future, whether he's going to be released or whether he's going to die, he, he lets them know, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's life, the, way, the reason he's able, the, found, you know, the foundation of his life that allows him to have joy in the midst of, of the hardships of life is this, that his life is so bound up to the life of Christ, to Christ's work. That for him to die and to be with Christ is the better thing. But he also knows that, that well, Christ has work for him to do. And for others' sake, he thinks he's going to live. Because Christ still wants to do, use him to encourage and build churches. But to live is Christ. That's his claim. That's what he says life is all about, is, is about being a person in Christ. Now, we can build our lives upon firm things or fragile things. Right? The things that we look to for our great satisfaction, our hopes, our joys, our purpose, our mission, the things that our life revolves around. And outside of Christ, these are fragile things. Oh, if I just have, if I get enough money, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be satisfied. If I can get a certain position and have a certain level of notoriety, if I can get that promotion and, and have that status, then life will be good. The current generation of, of, of young people, the number one career goal is to be a, a YouTube influencer. If I can get to that status, if I can have that level of notoriety, well, then life is going to be good. Or romance, if I can find the love of my life, we can settle down. Or perhaps in, in, often happens in Christian circles, family. If I can have that nice family, it's all about fa family is number one. We've got to sacrifice for family. And all these things can be good things. I'm not disparaging these things at all. But these are fragile things. These are fragile things where when the bang-ups and the hang-ups of life happen to us, it can not only just you know, mess up our pursuit of these, it can completely disorient who we are. Oh, we, you know, we're looking for money, but then we get sick and we can't work for years and our bank account continually drains down. We're looking for a romance and family to satisfy us and then it doesn't satisfy the way it should. The person we married isn't the man or the woman that we thought. They walk out on us. Or perhaps everything is great, and they die. And at such times, we look to God and say, well, where are you? Why do you let this happen to me? But at the same time, we're demanding from these things the one thing that they cannot give, stability. That these are f things that are easily broken and fractured for our lives. And we're placing all of our hopes and identities in these things. And, and, the, and blaming God when they don't work out. When, when God has given us something that is firm. That cannot be lost. That cannot be broken. That cannot be stolen from us. That no sickness or death or trial 
or bang up or hang up or times in a lurch can take away from us. He has given us a mission and a purpose and a vision and identity that transcends all these hardships that we have. Not to say that you know, any one of those situations would be hard for anybody, but God has given us a core, a foundation that can sustain us through those things. Imagine, if you would, an elite football player, an elite high school football player who you know, has you know, future pro written all over him. He's, you know, he is getting scholarship offers from all the big names of Alabama, Ohio State, Penn State, I guess, Clemson. <laughs> you know, the, the schools that are you know, at the top tier, and it looks like his, his future is, well, it's a grand one. And this young football player, you know, he has his hope and has his identity and his purpose in becoming, you know, a future NFL player who's going to have money and fame and, and all these things, but then gets in a car wreck. And his body is hurt. And it looks doubtful that he'll ever become the player that he was promised to be. And all the scholarships are rescinded. And his hopes are dashed. And what, what hope can I give to this young man? What, what joy can he find in such a predicament when, his, when all his hope and identity and purpose is in becoming this future NFL player and that dream has been squashed? What's left for him? Very little. But imagine a man with just as much talent and ability with just as much um, and, and drive, but his mission, his, his life is built upon the very mission of God. And while he's receiving the same scholarship offers, and he has the, you know, the same potential, and he gets in the same car wreck, but his life, you know, at the core of his life is who he is in, in Jesus Christ. And his mission is, is to proclaim him in all circumstances. And while what his life is how he's going to do that has been radically changed and altered by the car accident. His life isn't completely disrupted. His mission and identity and hope and purpose all remain the same. And the call to become people who can have joy in the midst of, of all circumstances, including the, the setbacks of this life, first requires us to be people who build our lives on something that is firm rather than fragile. And the things of this world, the things that we often desire the most, that we look to to satisfy us, these are the fragile things of this world. And there is none. There's no joy. There's no joy when that is your foundation and your foundation is crumbling cannot be had. And for us to demand that it gives us that, it demands the very thing that it cannot offer us. We must become like Paul and to proclaim that for us to live is Christ, that there is no separation between you know, our life in Christ and in this world. Right? There's no greater thing for us to pursue. There's no greater thing for us to, to uh, build our life upon it is the firm thing. 
It is the rock that cannot be shaken. So not only to have joy and setbacks do we build our life upon firm things rather than fragile things, but we focus on faithfulness rather than functionality. Faithfulness rather than functionality. Because in the lurch, when you experience the bang-ups and hang-ups of this world, your functionality is going to diminish. You cannot do what you once could do or what you thought you would be able to do. You're in the slump. But you are still called. What you're supposed to focus on is how in the midst of this can I be faithful? Faithful to what God has called me to do and to be. Yes, my ability, or, you know, the, my ability to function has diminished. My ability to, to do all these things and to build a name and to, to be on a stage or whatever it is, it, it's, not what it, it's not what I thought it was going to be. But where I am, I can still be faithful. Read with me again verses 15 and 16. So Paul's talking about you know, that some who are out there, they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love. And this is, the, this is kind of the, the key phrase. Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. This is how Paul views himself, and this is how those with goodwill and preaching viewed Paul's situation, that he was put there. Well, by whom? Not, not the Jews, not the Romans. No. God has put him there. God has placed them in this situation. And it doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to make sense. Like, God, this is like, this is the A-list missionary. Don't you see the churches that he's planted? Don't you see the fruit of his ministry? Don't you see all these things that he has done for for you and you're going to sideline him for a couple of years? But God has placed him there. And even though it's an unpleasant place to be, he is placed there. That that phrase, I am put here, it's originally like a military term, like to be, I am stationed here. Paul is viewing himself as a man under orders. This is God's order for him, and he's to fulfill it. Now, if you're familiar with, you know, people in the military, um, being under orders can be one of those frustrating things. We, you know, my wife and I just moved from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, um, which houses one of the biggest Coast Guard bases on, on the East Coast. And so, you know, a lot of our friends, a lot, you know, many people who attended our, our church, uh, well, they were Coast Guard people. And there's always this nerve-wracking time when, well, their orders were going to expire and they were going to be potentially set out on, well, a new place. Some of them, you know, based upon what roles were available and according to their skills and rank and all that, you know, they would, there might be a place near family and they, they'd put in for that. Others were like, hey, we're happy here. We'd like to stay. But there's always this, you know, little bit of a trepidation of, well, will I get a place where I'm going to be happy or am I going to get a crummy place? You know, I had one such friend. They were, um, 
you know, they're, they're pretty close to us, and he was told that he was going to be able to stay in, in our town, and he, he was excited, we were excited. Him and his family had just are new in the Lord, they're growing in, in our church, um, and, you know, he's excited, yes, he's told, you know, you're, you're going to get to stay here for, for a little bit longer, and then he finds out his wife's pregnant, so it's all the more relief that he gets to stay. But then his official quarters came in, late, and rather get to stay there in eastern North Carolina, they said, you know, you're actually going to have to do a, a stint in Kodiak, Alaska. And the orders came in so late that the, the normal ferry ride, they weren't able to get it, and so they had to go through Canada to get to Kodiak, where they would have to drive 18-hour stretches between towns with a pregnant wife and a couple really, really rambunctious children. It's not the orders that he would choose. It's not what he would desire for himself. It's not anything that he would say, like, this is what's going to be good for my family. But he is a man under orders, and so what does he do? Well, he goes. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But as a man under orders, he needs to Trust those who are above him to make right decisions, to see the greater scope of, of what needs to be accomplished. Now, in the military, you're, the people who are above you are, are people, and so they're, they're just as prone to uh, foolish or brash or spiteful or inconsiderate decisions as, as other people. But Paul serves a good, wise God. And you serve a good and wise God who can see how everything plays out, who sees the scope of history and your history and your future. And as he's looking at these things, he's saying, you know, this is where you need to be at this time. And as a person under orders, you can take peace and solace and say, yes, I can trust, I can trust what God is saying. I can be faithful here. Yes, my what I would consider to be my functionality, my productivity, and my ability to do the things that, that would bring you know, honor and, and things of that nature is diminished. But I'm able to be faithful. God is calling me as a man or a woman under orders to be faithful there. You know, am I, I'm a part of a denomination. It's a very small denomination. And, and in it, well, there's... You know, some bigger churches and a lot of smaller churches. And it seems at our denominational events that we go to that, you know, the, the pastors who are part of, of bigger churches who, who seem to be able to well, have higher levels of productivity and functionality, who have more congregants and, and all these things, well, they often get places of honor. They get speaking appointments. They get to help lead services. And, you know, there's lots of things that I can, I, I can learn from these people, but the ones I've come to really respect are not the people with the biggest stage and the biggest crowd and the ability to, to market their churches. No, the people I, I've really come to respect are the pastors who are part of a small rural church in a dying town with a dying congregation 
who recognize that God has called them there to shepherd the flock at that time, even though there's no honor or prestige to be had. Those are the ones that are going to be called first in the kingdom of heaven. Mark my words. That where you are in, in the midst of life and you're saying, oh, I'm in this place where you know, I'm, I'm set back. I'm not able to function the way I, I, I thought I could. I'm not able to do the things that, that seem to be honorable and, and seem to be, to be building and, and that seem to be, well, what God would want for my life. Yet God, he's placed you where he's placed you. And he's not called you to, have, to produce all, everything. He's called you to be faithful where you are. And you can have joy in the midst of that because you know where I am, where God has called me to be. God has called me right here and right now to, to this place, to be in the lurch, to be in what feels like a slump. Now, that leads us to our last point, to have joy in setbacks I need to focus on having a greater perspective rather than self-pity. Perhaps this may be one of the harder ones for us to deal with. Because we live in a world where you know, it, it seems so commonplace that the vision of our life is to focus inward and to focus in on every injustice, everything that's not right, everything that doesn't meet my expectations or desires, and to sit there and stew and pity myself. And how easy would it have been for Paul to write this letter and to just lambast all the injustices that he, that he had to face? If my fellow Jews didn't lie about what I was saying, I wouldn't be here. If that mob would have just listened to me, they would have understood. If this Gentile court would have just stood up for justice, I wouldn't be in this place. I wouldn't be in this cell. The church would just come and rather than abandon me, come and, and, and nourish me and encourage me and not turn their back on me, maybe life wouldn't be so hard. Who would blame Paul for doing such a thing of that, of that nature? These are real problems, real injustices that he faced. But he realizes, as we just were talking about, that he wasn't put there Ultimately, because of the, you know, the lies of some of the Jewish leaders or the unruliness of the mob or the injustice of the Gentile court. No, he is placed there because God has appointed him to be there. God has set him there. And he's able to, to know, knowing that, able to step, take a step back and rather than looking inward about his own you know, experiencing of grievances, he's able to have perspective that, well, if God has set me here, he has set me here for a purpose and for a reason and for a plan, that God is at work in my midst. Alec Motyer, um, he writes of this passage and he, he reminds us that, you know, Paul did not see his suffering as an act of divine forgetfulness. Why did God let this happen to me? Nor dismissal from service, I was looking forward to years of usefulness, and now look at me. Nor is the work of Satan. I'm afraid the devil has had his way this time. But as his place of duty, the setting for service, and the task appointed. And beloved, 
when God has called you to this place where you're in the lurch, when you experience the bang-ups and the hang-ups of this world, where it seems like you're in the, in the slump, and there is like even in the waiting place, God has called you there for a purpose and for a reason. That God is at work in the midst of those times, and he's calling you to be faithful. He's calling us to be faithful in those times. And when we take a step back and rather than fixating on our own problems and our own perceptions and every grievance that we can muster up, and we take a step back and say, well, if God has placed me here, what as Joseph remarked when his brothers sold him into slavery, that what, even though they attended, intended for evil, that God has meant for good, that God is going to be at work here, here in the lurch. And so Paul implicitly asks, well, if God has called me here, how is my mission going to be transformed here rather than going sailing about and planting churches and encouraging pastors? Why has he placed me here? What does he want me to do here? How does he want me to be about his business here in this place? And so let's read again in verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. You hear that word actually? It's just like, you wouldn't expect that this to be the thing that, this, you wouldn't expect that this is the result of what has happened to me, but it is. It's advancing the gospel. You think that sidelining me from being able to you know, go about church planting and, and preaching and proclaiming, now, that was going to advance the gospel. But no, this has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and they're all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. As Paul takes a step back and he looks at and he you know, follows through on faithfulness where he is, he's able to see in the divine perspective of why God has placed him there and see the fruit of that and, and rejoice over it. The palace guard is hearing about Christ. Every day as they, they come and they're, they're chained to me, I get to proclaim to them the glories of Christ. Every day when our friends come and, and, and they take care of me and feed me food, we get to talk about Christ and the palace guard is hearing his name. He's hear, they're hearing his work and his name is becoming renowned among them. The church is being emboldened to proclaim Christ because I'm in here. Yes, I'm in here for preaching the gospel without fear. And now they, they see what has happened to me. And rather than recoiling it, they're encouraged and they're proclaiming the gospel without fear. The ministry is being multiplied because I'm in here. And people are stepping up to proclaim Christ in all circumstances. And what Paul doesn't write, but what we can see, is that while Paul is imprisoned and sidelined from what he would consider his normal ministry, what does he do? Well, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. 
And while in the moment actually going to these churches and proclaiming them the glories of Christ and encouraging them may have seemed a lot more productive and fruitful, 2,000 years later, we have his encouragement with us. We are encouraged. He's done works that have stood the test of time that nourishes the saints, not just in his immediate vicinity, but through all time and in all areas, all over the globe, because what? Well, God had stationed him there. God had appointed him and set him in the lurch. Oh, beloved, you who's experienced the setbacks, the bang-ups and the hang-ups of this life, become a people who can have joy in the midst of those, who recognize the worthiness of God, that he is worth all your life, whether to be stationed high or to be stationed low. He is worthy of it. A God who is sovereign, who places you where you ought to be, That's not saying that you can't ever work to escape. You know, Paul tried to get free, but he recognized from the moment he was arrested until the moment he was free that God was the one who put him there, who set that for him. And he's called to be faithful in that moment. And remember that God is working there in the lurch, in the slump, and even in the waiting place. That God has not called you just to wait, but God has called you to be faithful. And what that looks like may differ, what that looks like may not really, you know, make any sense. But in faithfulness, you're going to find the perspective that God is at work. He's called you to these places for a reason and that his name is going to go forward through you, his church, his people, the, one in, the ones in whom he has placed his name. He's called you into this place. So beloved, trust him. Love him. See things as he sees things. And you may be saying, well, that's the one thing I can't do. I can't love him like Paul's loved him. I can't trust him the way Paul's trust him. I want to look up. I want to see the perspective that Paul does. But really, I'm just, I can't get my eyes off myself. To you, I say, look to Jesus. Open your hearts to him. Let him transform your heart and your mind into his image and likeness. Because what you cannot do in the flesh or by your willpower or by your own strength, God can do in Christ as you look to him and place your faith in him that he is the, gone, he is the, the one who is working and powerful. That you are the recipients of the new covenant. That he, you are the recipients of those to whom he has given a new heart. That he wants to transform our half-hearted love and trust into one that's wholehearted. But he, you, you can't do that by your own willpower. So in that, you come and you trust and you allow him to transform your heart and your mind. This time I'd like to call up the, the worship team. Let's pray. Kind Father, I ask that um, 
as there are, are many burdens and many struggles and uh, many who are undergoing difficulties here. Lord, we invite your spirit to come and change and transform our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to do what we cannot do in the flesh, to love you with a whole heart, to recognize the, your entire worthiness of our lives, to trust you when the chips are down, and to see things as you see them, to see your plan unfold through us. So Lord, come and minister to your people. Bring joy and create in us a people who can have joy. In the midst of all setbacks, we pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.